We'd like to give you all a warm welcome as today we continue our journey through these beautiful teachings of Jesus known uh, throughout history as the Beatitudes. Uh, On Monday, we took an overview of the Beatitudes in Luke and Matthew, and we're focusing this week on the Beatitudes as found in Matthew chapter 5. So, so far, we've gone through the first three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They are simple words with profound meanings. And uh, today we're going to journey through the next two Beatitudes that are found here in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And then we'll be looking at the final one for today, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. I invite you to bow your heads with me, whether you're here in our audience or on our audience online in your homes, um, as we invite the presence of God to bless this study together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can indeed hear these words of Jesus echoing down through the centuries. Father, I thank you that in whatever nation, tribe, language, or people we count ourselves, no matter what portion of the globe we happen to be living in today, I thank you that these teachings of Jesus apply to us, no matter where we are, as much as to anybody else. I thank you, Father, that Jesus speaks to each of our hearts, and he guides us in the path of righteousness. And so, Lord, as we listen to this meditation this morning on the Beatitudes of Jesus, may your Spirit indeed guide the way that we should live our lives. Father, transform the thinking in our minds, soften our hearts, that we may hear your Spirit speak to each one of us. And Father, as we finish this seminar this morning, I pray that we will be different people to those who sat down to listen in the beginning. I pray that as I speak, Father, there will be more of you and less of me in my heart and in the hearts of the hearers. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. And so this beatitude here of Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this is a, a spiritual concept, but it is rooted in deep physical realities. In the developed world, sustained hunger is almost non-existent. Yes, we have hungry people here in America. A large proportion of children here in America go to bed hungry, and they may suffer from a malnourishment. But as a general rule, we, we find sustained hunger mostly in the, the 1040 mission window or in the developing parts of the world today. Most of us today are satisfied with our food intake, and for many people living in the West, hunger indeed is a rare sensation. But in the developing world and at the time of Jesus, hunger and thirst were daily realities. And just as satisfying our hunger and our thirst is an all-consuming daily concern, so our hunger and thirsting after righteousness is by implication to be an all-consuming and a daily concern. We are concerned about our daily food, and likewise we are to be concerned about being filled with the righteousness of God. And so here in this beatitude, it is important to notice that Jesus did not say, blessed are those who maintain a righteous lifestyle, but he infirms the dynamic ongoing nature of the search for righteousness. Those who are blessed of God are not those who have arrived at a certain state, like a crystal, uh, like, like, um, like a chandelier or, or a beautiful piece of cut glass crystal. No, the kingdom of God is represented as those who are seeking for greater righteousness, Um, Just turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, and uh, it's always important and helpful to translate Scripture from Scripture, to use one Scripture to shed light on another Scripture, 
And in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 45, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a merchant. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. The kingdom of heaven here is not the pearl. It is the merchant in the process of seeking for the pearl. Uh, what Jesus is teaching us is that we are blessed by God even as we hunger and thirst every day for more righteousness in our lives. We're not going to claim that we've arrived, but in the process of seeking righteousness, we experience God's blessings. If you're ever going on a journey, you'll know that as you're preparing to maybe go to the airport, you, you, you put aside all your daily concerns and you pack your bags and you're focused on the journey itself, are, are, we, are we not? And uh, you lay aside um, the hobbies and the projects and all the other things that clutter our daily lives. And when you're going on a journey, your focus is the journey. You want to reach that destination and you set aside everything that would hinder you from making that journey. And so it is when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He is teaching us that it is in striving for righteousness. It is in the process of striving that God brings the blessing into our lives. But what is this righteousness that Jesus is talking about in the, in the Greek? The word is dikaiosune. What does it mean that this righteousness, there's a hunger and thirst after righteousness here in Matthew 5? Well, the word righteousness, even though uh, we use it very commonly in our theological discussions, the word righteousness does not appear in the Gospel of Mark. It only appears once in the Gospel of Luke, but it appears seven times throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew records teachings of Jesus seven times that have to deal with righteousness. And uh, the, the Hebrew word for righteousness, which is tzedakah, and the Greek word dikaiosune, they are packed with meaning. But the underlying idea of the word righteousness is not a standard of lifestyle. It is not that you do not do this and you do do this. To the contrary, uh, the, words, uh, the, uh, the idea behind righteousness is there is an underlying relationship, and every underlying relationship makes claims on your visible behavior. I hope that makes sense to everybody. If you love somebody, that determines how you treat them. If you're in a relationship with them and you say, I love you, then that person has the right to make certain claims on how you interact with them, how you speak with them, how you honor them or treat them in public. And so righteousness is the concept that we are in a relationship with our Heavenly Father, and because we are in a relationship with our Heavenly Father, that relationship has claims on how we live our lives, how we relate to each other, how we relate to our Heavenly Father, how we relate to those closest to us. I just want to explore for a few minutes some of these concepts of righteousness that we find in the Scriptures. Uh, turn in your Bibles back to Micah chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. And uh, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. There we are, Micah chapter 6. And in Micah chapter 6, very famous passage. We have one concept of righteousness here that Jesus does touch upon in these Gospels. And uh, I'm going to read from Micah chapter 6. And verse 6, and this is what it says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In this passage here, uh, Micah is asking the rhetorical question, what is it that God asks of each of us? And uh, but just before that, in verse 5, um, God reminds His people that His righteousness is manifest to His people in His saving acts. 
if you look there in verse 5, that the, um, the last sentence says, it says that you may know the saving acts of the Lord, literally the righteousness in the Hebrew of the Lord. Here we see that righteousness refers to God's acts in history to save His people. And so to hunger and thirst after righteousness means that you're actually hungering and thirsting after God's salvific work within your own life. It means that you're looking for God to do a work of salvation today in my life, just as I hunger for food every day, so I'm hunger for God to work a deep work of salvation in my own life on a daily basis. Another concept of, of righteousness that we find, again, in the Old Testament that, that finds echoes in this beatitude is in Isaiah 54 and verses 10. If you want to turn there in your Bibles with me, Isaiah chapter 54, and we have there a beautiful description of God's righteousness. And if I may find it in my, my passage here, Isaiah chapter 54, beginning at verse 10, it says there, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, saith the Lord, who has compassion upon you. Here we read about God's chesed, his covenant faithfulness to his children. He talks about his covenant of peace, that God enters into a relationship of peace and blessing with his people. It goes on in verse 14, in righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not be afraid, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Then the conclusion is no no, in verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall prosper, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and my version says, and their vindication from me, saith the Lord. But the Hebrew there is tzedakah, it is, and their righteousness from me, saying the Lord says the Lord. So this means that in this beatitude, Jesus, when he talks about those who, who yearn and hunger and thirst after righteousness, he's talking about those who are longing for a renewed and a renewing relationship with their heavenly Father, that God may demonstrate his salvation in their lives, that God's righteousness may be manifest in their lives, that we may experience a covenant of peace with our heavenly Father, that we may experience chesed, or this covenant faithfulness, the love that will not let me go within our relationship with our heavenly Father. Third point about justice and righteousness that we find uh, in, in the Scriptures is that uh, whereas we tend to separate out righteousness and justice, um, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you find that justice and righteousness are very much overlapping concepts. We separate it out, but it's hard to separate it out in the Scripture. Righteousness and justice do not consist in giving every man his due, but in the Scripture it includes showing mercy and compassion to the outcast, to the oppressed, to the weak, to the widow, to the orphan. And Job describes this very nicely in Job 29, verses 14 through 16. I turn just a few pages back to Isaiah 42, and you have a definition of justice that that we will talk again at the end of our seminar here today. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3. It's a passage talking about the servant of God. It is a messianic passage about our Savior Jesus Christ. And it says there in verse 2, He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so righteousness and justice, which are overlapping concepts in the Old Testament, they do not involve responding with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth when somebody has hurt us. 
Rather, we respond to those who hurt us with compassionate acts of mercy because we recognize that they also are broken and exhausted by the burden of sin. And finally, righteousness is connected to peace. Turn back a few pages again to Isaiah 32. And we see there in verses 17 through 20 that the effects of righteousness within a community, that when there is a righteous individual within a community, within a home, within a subdivision, within a district, there is a wider impact. Isaiah 32 and verse 17 says, the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness will be quietness and trust forever. Then verse 20 says, happy will you be who sow beside every stream, who let the ox and the donkey range freely. That is when God's righteousness is manifest and lived out within a community, even the natural world experiences that blessing, that the ox and the donkey can range freely. They have no fear of harm coming their way. And so righteousness creates, shall we say, a, a halo effect around it. It doesn't just affect my relationship with God. It also affects the natural world around me. It affects the animal kingdom around me, and it affects all of my human relationship. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness, who yearn for it on a daily basis as much as they yearn for their daily food. What are the implications of this beatitude? Well, turn back to Matthew chapter 5, and uh, uh, Matthew, uh, he starts out the the Sermon on the Mount with his beatitudes, and then much of the rest of the beatitudes of of the Sermon on the Mount is a discussion of what does this mean in practice. And so, if you just take a look at Matthew chapter 5 there, Jesus discusses through this chapter what it means to live and to express this new form of righteousness within our daily lives. So, for instance, Matthew 5, 21 through 26 discusses anger. And Jesus is teaching us a new way of dealing with those from whom we are alienated. He's teaching the principles of peacemaking and reconciliation. We'll come more to that when we, just, when we cover that beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Then he talks in Matthew, 27, Matthew 5, 27 through 30, which is talking about adultery. And Jesus is discussing a new way of relating sexually to others that is in a non-exploitative and a non-manipulative manner. And then Jesus discusses in verse 31 and 32, he discusses divorce, which was a big problem among the Jews of his time. And what does righteousness mean when we come to the question of divorce? Well, Jesus talks about a new way of honoring women. That is, we're not seeking to exploit women or to abuse them. Then when it comes to verse 33 through 37, Jesus gives us another example of what it means to live this righteousness. Uh, He gives us a a new code of honor. That is, you live by your word itself. And then coming down to verses 38 and 42 concerning retaliation, you know, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, Jesus says, well, turn the other cheek. Jesus gives us a new way of, of dealing with abuse and evildoing, that is disarmament uh, through, through a, a, a peaceful response. This is righteousness in action. And then in verses, verse 43 through 47, the end of this chapter, where you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say unto you, Jesus gives us a new way of living this righteousness um, by teaching us that we should treat all people as members of our own family. We should not be dividing people up into friends and enemies, but we are called as we live this righteousness that we hunger for daily, we are called to treat people as members of our own family, and therefore we wish the very best for them. This beatitude concludes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall 
be filled. This is an important point because God is the one who's going to satisfy this yearning for righteousness. And for many people today, this is a strange concept because if we believe that righteousness is adherence to a lifestyle or a series of lifestyle expectations or an ethical standard, then what we're ultimately seeking is the approval of the community around us. But when Jesus says, they shall be filled, grammatically this is known as a divine passive. Jesus is saying, it is God who satisfies your hungering after righteousness. It is not the approval of the community that you're seeking for. And therefore, if we seek daily, if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, that the approval of our local congregation is of secondary importance to us to seeking the approval of our Heavenly Father. We're not concerned so much about what the gossips might say or the criticism that might come our way. We're not so worried when people say, oh, he's slightly crazy. He's taken his faith to a new extreme. We're seeking first and foremost to express our delight in our relationship with God on a daily basis, and we're seeking God's approval. We're not seeking the approval of men or women. If righteousness describes a relationship that is granted as a gift from God that brings peace, then only God can satisfy that longing for righteousness, and the approval or disapproval of our local community is of secondary concern only. We are not righteous to please our peers, but we are righteous to show gratitude to God and to maintain our relationship with Him. So there are some questions that come out of this beatitude. I just want to invite you to ponder these questions. You see them on the screen here before you. What does righteousness mean to me? How does the Adventist lifestyle, among other things, fit into Jesus' understanding of righteousness? Does it? Do we seek to live an Adventist lifestyle because we want the applause of those around us? Or are we seeking to receive God's blessing and to receive the approval of God and seeking to honor God in all the decisions we make on a daily basis? Am I already satisfied with God? Have I had my fill? You might say, am I a Laodicean? Or am I still hungering after God today? Am I still yearning to grow in my experience? Have I reached a point in my spiritual walk where I think I've come this far and I don't need to go any further? I have enough head knowledge. I live a suitable lifestyle. That's good enough for me. Well, in this case, this beatitude speaks to, to us in this situation because just as we look, look for food and drink on a daily basis, Jesus is inviting us, no matter where we are in our walk with him, no matter how long we've been walking in the light, no matter what our background may be, whether an ordained pastor or an elder or a Sabbath school teacher or whatever we may do for a professor in the university, Jesus is inviting us to daily seek a deeper and a more life-giving relationship with him. So is there a promise or an invitation from God for us today in this beatitude? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts today as you watch online from your homes? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Are you seeking God's approval or are you seeking the approval of men? If you're happy with the approval of men and women, are you really concerned about what God thinks? And so I want to challenge us today to, to hunger and thirst after righteousness on a daily basis, to, uh, to seek a more, a more wholesome expression of our relationship with our Father in order that we, may, that, that we might bring joy to Him and that there might be rejoicing in heaven above. Which brings us to the next of these Beatitudes. The next of these Beatitudes is found there in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. 
and it is a paradox of human nature that we tend to seek justice for those who've offended us, but mercy from those whom we have offended ourselves. We want justice to be applied to somebody that hurt me, but when it comes to me, then I don't want justice to be applied to me. I want you to receive mercy. And this is a paradox of human nature. It doesn't matter what part of the world you live in. It seems that people want justice for those who hurt them, and they want mercy when they've hurt somebody themselves. And yet, when we look in the Scriptures, the Hebrew Old Testament and in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find that the, the concepts of justice and mercy are closely related, just as we've just been discussing, that justice and righteousness are also closely related within the Old Testament. And so, but it's interesting that the word for uh, merciful only appears once in the Gospels, and it's here in Matthew 5 and verse 7. We may major in mercy, and that is a good thing, but the only time the word for mercy or merciful appears in all four Gospels is here in Matthew 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So what was Jesus talking about? Well, the Pharisees operated under a retributive concept of justice, which often hurt individuals. It means you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the point about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was not that I hurt you and you hurt me back. It's because if you hurt me, not only do I want to hurt you back, but I want to give you that little bit extra just to teach you a lesson. And so the whole point about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is, is not that, you know, you hit me, I can hit you back. It's actually restraining the human desire for vindictiveness and revenge and just to give you that little bit extra when I hurt you back. And so for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is actually God restraining our human desire to hurt one another. But in the time of Jesus in the Second Temple Judaism, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth had become merged with the idea that you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you twice as hard back. But Jesus argues in this gospel here that mercy fulfills the demands of justice. Turn just a few pages to Matthew 9 and verse 13. And this is the, the only passage of the, New of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes more than once. Uh, he quotes it again in Matthew 12 and verse 7. But this is what Jesus says. It says, Matthew 9 and verse 12, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus, in, in the words of Jesus, mercy becomes a, liber, a liberating and a dignifying force. Mercy and justice are not to hurt, the, not to hurt those who cause pain, but in the, in the kingdom of God, mercy isn't the agent by which God restores the dignity of human beings when there is a conflict. Now, Leviticus 19, 1 through 2, God called his people to be holy, and this is what it says. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, I am holy. And in a sincere effort to be faithful to this command from God, to be holy among the people of God, the leaders of Israel had developed over the centuries in the oral Torah a very detailed list of the physical requirements for that holiness. What did it mean to be holy? And by the time of Jesus in Second Temple Judaism, holiness was equated with purity. And purity was equated with ritual cleanliness or uncleanliness, 
And cleanliness was, was associated with the notion that some people are ritually clean and some people are ritually unclean. And so many of the disputes that Jesus has with the Pharisees, such as Mark 7, when they ask his disciples, why do you not wash your hands before you eat? These are questions of ritual cleanliness. But the good news of Jesus is that holiness, the call to holiness, is not associated in the teachings of Jesus with cleanliness or uncleanliness. In the teachings and the life and ministry of Jesus, the concept of holiness is equated with mercy. In the gospel, the politics of purity are replaced by the politics of compassion, and this is what led to constant conflict with the religious authorities. We see in the ministry of Jesus that being merciful involves responding to real human needs with compassion in action. But there is a paradox here, and uh, we need to explore this for a minute, because being merciful and showing mercy is a paradox for modern believers. And why do I say that? Well, firstly, do we forgive others as God forgives us? The Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verse 9 through 13 says this, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. And it sounds here as if the two forms of forgiveness, me forgiving you and God forgiving me, that these two forms of forgiveness are actually parallel to each other. But if you turn over to the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, something else is said there. Luke 11 verse 4, maybe turn in your Bibles there, we see there that Jesus says something slightly different. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 4, uh, we read there, it says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. The implication here is, do we forgive others in order that God will then forgive us? It's slightly different to what Matthew says, where we forgive others as God forgives us. In Luke's gospel, we forgive others in order that God will then forgive us. And so we must forgive others in order to receive God's forgiveness. But there is, another, there is another picture of forgiveness back in Matthew's gospel. If we turn to Matthew chapter 18, is the parable of the servant who was forgiven an incredible sum of money by the master. This is a par- uh, on Matthew chapter 18, a very famous sermon of Jesus. And Jesus is talking about forgiveness and, and the settling of debts within the community of faith. And in this passage here, the parable of the unforgiving servant He tells of a servant who was forgiven a huge debt by his master, only to subsequently refuse to forgive a paltry debt owed him by a fellow servant. And for this failure, he was condemned by his master. And the lesson of Matthew 18 relating to mercy and forgiveness, the question is, does God forgive us first, and then we are able to forgive others? Because we've experienced God's forgiveness, we now know what mercy tastes like, we can then pass it on to somebody else. As a practical illustration, if you had to describe to somebody what does ice cream taste like, who's never tasted ice cream, how would you describe the taste of ice cream? It's very hard to do. If you've never tasted ice cream, it's hard to describe. You might say, well, imagine, um, imagine that you, have, um, uh, you take some margarine, and you, put, and, you, and, you, and you put your spoon into the margarine, and then you sprinkle a bit of sugar on it, and you put it in your mouth. Maybe that's the closest you're going to get to, to explaining what ice cream tastes like. And the point here is that unless you have experienced God's grace and forgiveness yourself, it's very hard to pass it on to somebody else. But when you know what forgiveness is, you can pass that forgiveness on around the world. This is one of the reasons why the saints of God can look forward in Daniel chapter 7 to a shared dominion with Jesus Christ for all eternity throughout the universe. 
Why does God trust the saints, the, the, the saints who make it through to the final conflict and they make it through to heaven? Why does God trust the saints of God with the eternal dominion of the universe, a shared dominion with Jesus Christ? Because the rest of the universe may have seen sin, but we have experienced sin. And the rest of the universe may know that there is a such thing as forgiveness, but we have experienced God's forgiveness. Therefore, we can faithfully represent his character to the universe for the rest of eternity. And so we have three patterns of forgiveness that Jesus talks about, or mercy, within the Gospels here. Firstly, do we forgive others as God forgives us? Secondly, do we forgive others in order that God forgives us? And thirdly, does God forgive us in order that we now know what forgiveness is and we can offer mercy to those around us? Which of these three patterns of forgiveness best captures what Jesus is talking about in this beatitude? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's actually very hard to say that Jesus is talking about one pattern of forgiveness and not another pattern of forgiveness. Maybe the reality is, is that in the complexity of our human lives, in the brokenness of our lives, with the pains and the aches, the hurtful words and the painful memories, all three um, understandings of forgiveness come into play in different times of our lives. To show mercy or to forgive truly is difficult. But the alternative to showing mercy is physical and spiritual self-destruction through the nursing of grudges or the seeking of revenge. Such grievances are often passed from generation to generation, and they become a destructive force in the lives of individuals and in, the, in wider society, such as in vendettas. The gospel teaches here, or Jesus is teaching in this beatitude, blessed are the merciful, that the blessed escape these crippling cycles of vengeance and bitterness and revenge precisely because they are merciful, that they break the cycle of, hurt, of hurtful actions, and they choose to forgive, and in, in choosing to forgive, they are blessed because they escape for generations to come those cycles of vendettas and the seeking of revenge. So what are the implications of this particular beatitude? Well, firstly, Jesus modeled mercy to the social outsiders of his day. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus ministered to tax collectors and sinners. In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew and prostitutes. In Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus ministered to a, Can a Canaanite woman, a woman from the same part of the world as Jezebel in the story of Ahab and Elijah. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus ministered to lepers who were literally social outcasts. In Matthew 26, verses 1 through 6 through 13, Jesus has an emphasis on ministry to women. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus ministers to those with dread diseases and even to the dead are the beneficiaries of his ministry. Mercy for Jesus was not an abstract concept, but it involved a personal reaching out to those who were excluded from the visible and the respectable community of faith in his time, and he sought to draw them into the kingdom of God. Secondly, like the Pharisees of old, many modern-day disciples are adept at drawing circles to define kingdom insiders. And once you've defined who a kingdom insider is, by implication you've defined who the kingdom outsiders are. Many disciples today, we tend to have definitions of modern-day or contemporary Canaanites. And uh, many modern-day disciples, they seek to avoid all contact with outsiders to avoid some kind of spiritual contamination. Yet how are those outsiders going to be warmly invited and led into the kingdom of God if the kingdom insiders are so focused on their own standards of purity 
and their own lifestyle that they actually want to avoid those on the outside. And so the previous teaching of Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, comes into play here, does it not? If we're focused on maintaining a lifestyle and not contacting, come into contact with people who don't have that lifestyle, then we're barking up the wrong tree. Righteousness in action is very similar to mercy in action. And it involves adopting the mission of Jesus, which was to seek and to save that which is lost. Yet the dynamic of mercy, as we see in the teachings of Jesus, is an absolute necessity for those who dwell within the kingdom of God. Mercy in the teachings of Jesus is non-negotiable, yet it is often prized less among believers today than holding to absolute and often very arbitrary lifestyle standards or standards of righteousness as we understand them today. Yet in the teachings of Jesus in this beatitude, a refusal to show mercy or refusal to work to show mercy to others actually excludes disciples from the kingdom of God. Look at Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount there. In verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is a stark warning from Jesus that mercy is a non-negotiable component of what it means to live in the kingdom of God today. We want to receive mercy from God, and so we are called by God to show mercy to those around us. God's people are therefore to be known as people of mercy, for we are to reflect the image of God who said to to Moses in, in Exodus 34 that the Lord is merciful and gracious. It is his very character. And finally, offering forgiveness and mercy preempts the need for future forgiveness because we break the cycles of vengeance seeking. When we forgive from our heart, we recognize the various forms of human and personal and institutional helplessness and deprivation, and we allow ourselves to be moved by the same compassion that moved Jesus. This compassion in the Christian community is to be tangible. We talk about becoming free of debt, and when we talk about being free of debt, we talk about financial freedom, but Jesus is primarily concerned about freedom from emotional and spiritual debts. For some individuals, this forgiveness involves reconciliation. Between groups, Jesus is teaching us about conflict resolution. Between nations, Jesus is calling maybe for the forgiveness of financial debts that prevent other nations and generations from being freed of the burdens of the past. Whatever the debt forgiveness may be, Matthew's house churches were to be a living witness to the transforming power of the gospel. Jesus wants us to live debt-free. And he's not talking about financial debt so much. He's talking about having no spiritual debts among ourselves. We actively seek to clear the balance, to to close those accounts on a daily basis, that we do not maintain anger and bitterness and rage, but we work for reconciliation, and we work, we we ourselves show mercy. As we're going to explore in the next two days, um, blessed are the peacemakers, which is a beautiful beatitude. Peacemaking in the mind of Jesus involves sacrificing myself in order that the wider community can be blessed. We'll come to that later in our study on these Beatitudes. I want to uh, close this morning, we have a few minutes left, with an example, and uh, I like giving practical illustrations. So, um, I'm, I'm hoping I don't burn the church down here today, uh, but on my morning walk uh, this morning, I, I collected a reed, and, and I've lost that reed, so um, or it's still in my car, so I don't have it here. There is one individual in the Gospel of Matthew who exemplifies what it means to be a righteous and a merciful individual, other than Jesus, and that is Joseph. 
Joseph, it says in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph was a righteous individual. And why was Joseph a righteous individual? Well, the, the gospel tells us that when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant, out of wedlock, it says, being a righteous man, he was minded to put her away quietly. Now, in, that, in those days, there were two kinds of divorce. The conservatives insisted that you could only divorce for grounds of sexual immorality, and that involved condemning the guilty party. The no-fault divorce was where a man could divorce his wife for literally burning the proverbial toast. I mean, you have no reason. You could just say, I divorce you, and that was it. And the wife was divorced whether she wanted it or not. And Joseph, when he discovered that Mary was pregnant... He could have opted for the fault, the at-fault divorce, the conservative option for divorce, which was, you have committed sexual immorality, you are now pregnant outside of childbirth, my reputation has been harmed, and if I don't sue you for divorce on the grounds of immorality, everybody's going to assume that I'm the father, and that I've um, been guilty of immorality as well. And Joseph, rather than taking that option and putting all the blame on Mary, he chose to put her away quietly, that is a no-fault divorce, there is no see, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. We're just quietly going to separate, and I'm not going to shame Mary in public. He chose to, set, to separate quietly and to bear for the rest of his life the shame and the, the scandal and the whispering and the gossip that, where did Mary get pregnant? Who's the father of her child? But he chose to put her away quietly, and the gospel calls him a righteous individual. Literally, is a dikaios. We get the word uh, righteousness from that, dikaiosune, which is what Jesus talks about in his Beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, the messianic concept of justice, as we've already seen in Isaiah chapter 42, it says that uh, they will not quench or throw away a burning wick. Well, I have here, this is um, a second century oil lamp. Um, it's from a time of Christian persecution. Now, the reason we know this is from a time of Christian persecution, it's from Palestine, it's made of terracotta, is that on the top we have these little, um, it looks like flowers have been imprinted in, 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 this, in this item here. But, and there's, there's, there's a wick sticking out here, but you know it's a Christian lamp because underneath it there's a cross carved into the base. And Christians would often carve a cross into the bottom of their lampstand um, as, a sign, as a symbol that they are actually loyal to Jesus and they are the light of the world. And so you know it's a Christian lampstand because there's a cross on the bottom and it's on the bottom because there was persecution of Christians. And uh, they would put olive oil into this and then they put a wick, a bit of flax or a piece of cotton or a bit of wool in there and the wick would soak up the, um, the, wick would soak up the oil and it would burn. So I have some olive oil here and I'm not going to burn in my second century I'm not going to burn in my second century um, lampstand that's too precious for that. But I have a wick. I'm going to soak it in the oil here. And then I'm going to burn it. There you have your lamp, a little lampstand, and it's burning through the wick. And when the, lamp, the light goes out, what you're left with is something of no value. This really has no value. The only thing that, is, that this is fit for is to be thrown out. And that is the point of messianic justice. You see, when Joseph saw Mary, he, he lived out messianic justice. It says that messianic justice means that he will not, 
He will not uh, um, throw out a broken reed. He will not throw out a burnt wick. Even something as useless and as broken as a burnt wick that the Messiah will not harm. Joseph could have chosen to throw Mary out of his house and to get rid of the scandal, but rather than getting rid of her and maintaining his own um, social standing, he chose to take her into his house as his wife. He showed her mercy. He saw her, yes, broken, the subject of community scandal, as a young teenage girl uncertain of her future with a child by the Holy Spirit, not knowing how she would provide for that child when it was born, he chose to see her as a burnt wick or as a broken reed, and he took her into his home, and he stood by her. He was a righteous individual. And in so doing, the Messiah came literally into his own home. Had Joseph chosen to get rid of Mary, the Messiah would not have entered his home. And the man who spent more time with the Messiah while he was on earth was Joseph, precisely because he was merciful to Mary in her hour of desperate need. Jesus said, and he knows this from his own family experience, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus knew from his own life that when we show mercy to those in their brokenness, when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we actually make it possible for the Messiah to enter our own homes, to enter our own marriages, and to enter our own lives. My challenge for, us, for all of you here today, watching at home, online, or in our congregation today, is there somebody in your life that you need to show mercy to today? How do you relate to these dynamics of forgiveness that we've been reading about in these, be these Beatitudes of Jesus? Are there any modern-day Canaanites in your life? Is God calling you to, to recalibrate our thinking so they're no longer Canaanites but potential brothers and sisters? And is there a promise or an invitation for you in these two Beatitudes today? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Joseph did both, and the Messiah entered his home, and he experienced the blessing of Jesus for the rest of his life. May that be our experience as we live these Beatitudes today. In the name of Jesus, I pray for this for all of us. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.